0: I'm gonna do a little bit of teaching for the next uh, 25, 35 <laughs> minutes, and we're gonna we're gonna continue this series that we've been in for several weeks now. So I think this is this is probably number six in the series, and uh, and it's it's all about um, it's all about character. So we're talking about the cross shaped life as as a, a, a conversation about Christian character. And all of us have this thing called character. It's a little bit weird to talk about it because we don't, it's not part of our everyday vernacular, but you've got character. I don't know if it's good or bad or somewhere in the middle, but you've got character. Character is who you really are at your core, it's who you are deep inside. It's who you are when no one's looking. That's your character. And character, thank God, is not fixed, it's not static, it doesn't have to stay the same forever, all right? So we're talking about specifically Christian character throughout this series, and, and this is important for us to, to keep in mind, that the idea that it's not static or stagnant, because in the world today, and I know better than anyone because I used to say this about Christians, in the world, Christians have a reputation for being sticks in the mud, for being the stagnant kind of dig your heels and never gonna change my mind, <laughs> just stuck in your ways, and and that's who we're known as out there. But the Bible tells a very different story about how we're supposed to change and evolve and grow and mature as Christians. That's what the Christian life is supposed to look like. I've gotten an up-close glimpse as a pastor, obviously, of that kind of thing happening in people's lives. But even more than that, I've gotten a close glimpse in my marriage. And how this maturity process takes shape. So, 22 years I've been married to Giovanna as of officially June the 5th of next month. Uh, but unofficially, we eloped on May 11th. Don't tell anybody, but we, <laughs> we got married before. Uh, sorry, mom, if you're watching, but that's what, well, May 11th, we went to a Louisiana Justice of the Peace together, and uh, he happened to, unbeknownst to us, own a tavern that we visited uh, because he said that was his office and we showed up and got married on a Tuesday morning in a bar. And our witness was the drunk, the only man in the bar. Uh, and and the, the Justice of the Peace wife, who was the bartender. It was a fascinating day. <laughs> but that's how we got married. And we wanted to get married early because she was from Ecuador. And, uh, and, and we wanted to get her immigration paperwork started so she could get a job and help us pay the bills because we were broke. Okay, so that's, the, that's the, the, the long story. We got married 22 years ago. I can't believe all the ways that I've seen this woman grow and change. Like you don't know if you may not know all that she's been through to get to where she is today and to become who she is today. Some of you that know us really well and have known us a while, you probably know most of these things I'm about to tell you, but a lot of you do not know. When Giovanna was 14 years old, In Ecuador, in Quito, she was called to be a pastor. She felt convinced that God was calling her to be a pastor. There are very few, if any, churches, back then anyway, in Ecuador that recognized the authority of a woman to become a pastor. Mostly, back then anyway, Catholic churches and more um, uh, charismatic or Pentecostal churches where women could do certain things but not be pastors. But she was so convinced in her calling from God that she wouldn't let it go. And she had some very tough conversations around age 16 with her parents and her pastors, trying to figure out what to do with this inherent conflict between this call she's getting from God when she prays and this reality that she's hearing from her religious authorities. And so it was very tough conversations. At the end of those conversations, Giovanna, at the age of 16, having just graduated early from high school, chose to board a plane by herself from Quito, Ecuador. And she landed here in Houston at the age of 16, where she didn't really know a soul. She had a contact that she had communicated with AOL or something back then. And, and, and that's all that she had at a small Brazilian church out in the West Chase district of Houston. She landed at age 16 and she lived with one or two of those Christian families in, those church, in that church. She ended up serving in two different churches for, those, for a two-year time period. She was a child without her parents or anyone really but God to protect her, to look after her, to make sure she was okay, to check in on her. I didn't know her then, but I think back and I was just, on the one hand, I'm like, what were you thinking? Like, if she tried to pull something like that today, I'd get so mad at her for being reckless, you know, what are you thinking, putting yourself in harm's way? But but I knew, I, I know her now. There's nothing that was going to stand in her way from doing this. And she she worked in children's ministries for this Brazilian church out in West Chase. She scratched out a living for two years. I don't even know how she got by. But after that two-year time period, Giovanna managed to finagle her way into college, a small Methodist college, a few hours north of here. And that's where we met. First day, first class, first semester of our freshman year. And I was completely smitten. I'm from Red Redlick, Texas. I'd never seen a woman like this before. And I, my search was over at the age of 18, I was done and it took her a while. All right. I'm not going to lie. It took her a minute. Okay. But it didn't take her all that long because after our freshman year, we were engaged. And after our sophomore year, we got married. Completely insane. Okay. My kids will never be allowed to do this. Okay. But we were different then. Okay. It was a double standard. Get over it. Okay. So we got married. And And, you know, Giovanna thought because she had this clear calling from God that she was living for, she thought she was marrying this good Christian preacher's kid who probably would become a preacher himself one day. And that was in the cards. That was possible. I was a Christian then, but it was in our first year of marriage that I lost my faith that I renounced the faith of my childhood, and I, I chased for 13 years this sort of pseudo-kinda Christianity where it was really more about political activism and stuff, and, and I didn't really believe in anything fundamentally true about Christianity, the, you know, the bodily resurrection, the, the divinity of Jesus, all these important things that, that you know, define us as Christians. I didn't believe in then. I just thought Jesus was a good man. We should be good people too. And do the right thing and pursue justice and all this stuff. Some decent ideas, but really bad underpinnings. And I just, for the next 13 years, that's where I was at. I just got more and more uh, burned out, depraved, dark. And I I made her life in many ways a living hell. All right, not gonna sugarcoat it. Wasn't easy. I don't know why she stuck it out. Now, many of y'all know that story because we talk about it all the time. What a jerk I was during those 13 years. I've heard it again and again. All right, I remember, okay? I don't need to be told again and again, but that story keeps being told. The untold story is that during that same 13-year time span, Giovanna was no angel either, all right? So she also had her issues, okay? We don't talk about this as much, and I'm gonna talk about it today, okay? So Giovanna was a tough woman, In some ways, that's what drew me to her. She was a force of nature. But in other ways, it was a character flaw. She had a short fuse. She was struggling at that time with insecurity. She had a real sense of scarcity. And if anything went wrong, she would freak out. She she was a little scary. A lot of people described her then as scary. And I watched grown adult men cower in fear before this five-foot, three-inch little Ecuadorian girl, all right? And, and that's just kind of who she was. And I realize now, I didn't realize it then, but I realize now she was that way because her circumstances required it. Like she had to be that way. She couldn't have survived on the streets of West Chase from 16 to 18 without parents unless she was tough, Right? And so, you know, it doesn't mean she had to stay that way, but that's how she had to be to survive during that season of her life. And the most amazing thing has happened ever since. Like, God didn't leave her in that place. And if God had left her in that place, I'm not sure we would have made it. But God, just like God worked on me to transform my character, God has worked on her as well. And now she's like, she's like, sweet. And gentle and kind and only occasionally scary. And, and, and God's working in her. Now, here's the thing. This is the whole reason I'm sharing this, okay? When we talk about my character transformation, I almost always chalk it up to that fateful day in Capernaum in 2013. You've heard the story, right? My conversion moment in 2013 is when everything turned around. Giovanna's been a Christian the whole time. There's no conversion moment to point to. And so if we can chalk my transformation up to that conversion and the aftermath, what do we chalk hers up to? How do we explain her transformation? Well, it's as simple as this. In the Christian perspective, character transformation is not just about conversion. I mean, that can be a part of it. But if you've been a Christian your whole life, and really never renounced the faith or left it. You've had your ups and downs, but you've never like had that dark night of the soul like I always talk about. I know there's some of y'all out there that are like, I, that, I like your story, Eric, it's not my story. Maybe, maybe Giovanna's is closer to, to yours. I mean, I'm not saying you were you know, homeless in West Chase, but like maybe you've never left God, but there's still a trajectory he has you on to transform you from who you've been to who he's called you to be. And maybe it doesn't take a big conversion moment to turn that around. Maybe it's more of a slower, intentional, daily process of surrendering, surrendering yourself just a little bit more each day to the grace of God and how he transforms us. And so that's what this series is about, the cross-shaped life, is about how we are transformed in our character by the grace of God. The uh, early church put it this way. This is from uh, Paul when he talked about, he's he's challenging Christians to evolve, all right? So he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you received. be, Be completely humble. So he's not saying they're already this. He's saying be this, aspire to this, grow to this, mature to this. There's a goal here. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with each other in love so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach all unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son and become mature. Here it is, become mature. This is the goal for Christian character formation is for you to become mature, to reach a point at which you no longer need me or anyone else to feed you. You become mature and you feed yourself. And all this you get at Sunday, it's icing on the cake, all right? Or you're helping us feed others. But there's a growth process that we should all be engaged in where we are maturing. Then he says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. So every new idea that comes along, you don't fall for it. Every new scheme or whatever, you know, trend that, that takes the world by storm, you're not taken by it. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. You must no longer live as the Gentiles. In this context, Gentiles means unbelievers. Don't live like unbelievers do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them through the hardness of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, in other words, having lost all perception of spiritual reality, they have given themselves over to sensuality instead. So as to indulge in every kind of impurity, they're full of greed. That, however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him according to the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. So you see the theme here, old and new, old self, new self the way you were, the way you're becoming, all right? This is a running theme throughout scripture. So what the, the idea here is that there is a path you're on and you're walking it. You're not staying in one place, waiting to die and go to heaven. There's a path God has you on. I know the whole thing about uh, uh, born again Christians is kind of a trope, right? It's kind of, when, when I was a cynical person, I used to laugh about that phrase, born again Christian. That tells me you're a certain kind of Christian, one of those Christians. Well, according to scripture, there's no other kind. It's not born again Christians and then everybody else, the normal Christians. (laughs) Like normal Christians have to really check themselves to see if if they're really living in surrender to this idea that we need to be born again. We need a newness of life. We need a new self to put on, to replace the old. And, And so that's what God is doing with us. And so, so far in this series, we've been talking about these things through the lens of marriage, masculinity was week two. We've talked about conflict. Um, We've talked about forgiveness. Last week, Pastor Gio gave a message and she talked about um, living a legacy that's cross-shaped. And today I wanna talk about something that we've all been affected by. It's all been close to home the last 15 months. I wanna talk about the struggle, all right? A cross-shaped struggle. Now, not long ago, all the kids were saying the struggle is real. They hashtagged it and all of that. And they were talking about, I'm hopping on the struggle bus. And then their parents started saying those things. And so the kids got over it fast. You know, it's like, whatever. And so anyway, the kids don't say it anymore, but they were right when they were saying it because A, the struggle is real and B, the idea is that everybody's going to struggle. And we, we do And I think one of the lies, the deceitful schemes that Paul was writing about is this lie that if you have secular pursuits, a secular goal, you can actually get there. If you have a secular destination in life, I'm going to get there. I'm going to make that money. I'm going to get to that job. I'm going to get to that position, have that life, that house, that neighborhood, whatever. You will never arrive. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. But even if you do arrive to the goal you've been aiming for, you'll be disappointed because your expectations have been way too high. The goal could not deliver Uh, to live up to your expectations. You'll be disappointed and disillusioned. You're going to struggle. That's a certainty. What's uncertain or unclear is how you will react in the struggle, how you will respond. That's what's left up to us. Not whether we struggle or not. Listen, if you're rich, you're going to struggle in one way. If you're poor, you'll struggle in some other ways. If you're single, you're going to struggle with loneliness and boredom at times. But guess what? If you're married, you're going to struggle with loneliness and boredom <laughs> sometimes. That's how marriage is, right? So it doesn't fix the, the stuff you're, you're trying to fix. It, it just it adjusts the struggle just a little bit. You know, and, and that's just the way, the way that life goes. Life's going to be unfair to you. You're going to get, you know, some unexpected medical diagnosis that's gonna rock you. You're gonna be suddenly fired. You know, life's gonna go wrong. It's going to happen. But the question isn't, will I struggle? The question is, when I struggle, how will I respond, all right? How will I respond? React. So, so um my after studying the New Testament especially, my belief is that the struggle is not a curse. Your struggles are not a condemnation, but actually a hidden blessing. When you choose to see them the way God intends for you to, there are opportunities to grow. But to learn to embrace the struggle this way doesn't come naturally to you. It will take a supernatural force (laughs) to get your mind and your heart to that place. And that's why it's so important for us, whether you're struggling right now or whether you're in one of those seasons of peace, it's important for us to look ahead to Jesus and to see how Jesus struggled and how he prepared others to struggle. So let's look at that today. Just three quick things. First, when we look at the Gospels, we see how Jesus um, got his disciples ready for their struggles by simply preparing them for the struggle, preparing them for the struggle. So some of y'all probably read the Gospels through a few times. Maybe, Maybe you haven't. When you do, read about the middle section of Jesus's life between his baptism and his, let's say, his arrest. When you read those events, not in a vacuum, not as if Jesus is just having a show, like he's the star. When you read them instead through the lens of a classroom, you see what Jesus is doing. I'll give you an example. In Luke chapters 9, 10, and 11, Jesus puts on a master class in leadership. If you're one of those leadership, like, geeks, like, you got to check out these three chapters of Luke. It's fascinating to see and the the question you're going to ask as I walk you through this is what why would Jesus be doing this and the answer is because he knew he wouldn't be around forever and so he knew his disciples he knew we were going to have to be able to navigate the struggles without his physical presence leading us through all right, so let me tell you about what happened. Luke chapter nine, Jesus, instead of being the leader and, and having the disciples watch him do ministry like they had been doing, Jesus sent the 12 disciples out on their own and he gave them very specific instructions. You know what he told them? He said, hey, I'm sending you out. I'm gonna stay back. That's the first shock. What? You're, 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 we, we go without you, Jesus. Okay, got it. And then he says, don't take any food with you. No food, no bag, no money, no change of clothes. He said, the town that I send you to, find the nicest person there and live with them for a while. Don't move around, stay with one family. And if the town is hostile towards you, leave as quickly as you can. Ready, break. And they break and they go. I can only imagine what that was like for the 12. This was their first time, but they go out. And then in Luke chapter nine, verse 10, it says they returned from their mission and they reported to Jesus all that they had done intentional preparation. Okay? Heads of household, spouses, parents, roommates, listen, this is intentional. This is what we're called to do for the people we're leading. So Jesus calls them back together and they report back to him. And then Luke chapter 10. And what happens in Luke chapter 10 is that after sending out the 12, Jesus sent out another group, a different group. The 12 hang back this time. It's crazy. The 12 hang back with Jesus. Jesus sends out 72 other disciples. My theory here is that Jesus is all about multiplication. So Jesus had his three inner circle guys, Peter, James, and John. I think they each had three guys that made up you know, the 12. I think those three were responsible for three. It's, it's like a, a holy little pyramid scheme or something. Like Jesus is like pouring into these three and those three are pouring into their three. And if you think about the 12, each having six followers that they're mentoring or coaching, that's 72 people. And they went out. Jesus sent them out with the same instructions, by the way. I'm sending you out, sheep among the wolves. Watch out. If they're hostile, leave as quickly as you can. By the way, no food, no money, no change of clothes, no bag. Find the nicest person you can. Stay with them. Don't move around. Same instructions. He sent them out. They do ministry without Jesus and the 12 disciples looking over their shoulders. They come back and guess what? They report. They report to Jesus everything that they, so so there's a very intentional pattern here. Why? Because Jesus wanted them to be ready. He wanted them to be prepared for the struggle of carrying forward the church without him physically being there to lead them. And it's amazing to me that this is who Jesus is consistently. It's who God is with us consistently. And he's always been this way. Before every great season of struggle, you will be given a time to prepare. Every time you will have a time to prepare. It's the whole Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time for everything. All right? There's, there's a time to build up. There's a time to tear down. There's a time for war. There's a time for peace. Before your struggle you will have, and if you're struggling right now, you had a season to prepare. You know, that's just how God is. Before, you know, your uh, school year starts in the fall, you're going to have this season, this wonderful little getaway season of preparation called the summer. And how you use that time is up to you. <laughs> it doesn't mean it will automatically prepare you. You have to work for the preparation. You know, before you enter the struggle, the gauntlet we call marriage, you have this season of courtship and engagement where you prepare. Before you bring the neediest kind of human into the world, an infant, you have a nine-month window to prepare. God is just, he's like this. He wants to always give us this season. And as I look back on the last um, year plus, I can't help but feel like Many, many of us were caught unprepared when everything hit the fan and, and it all got really ugly. I know that was my first reaction as a church leader. I felt like we as a church had not adequately prepared people to feed themselves instead of needing a church or a pastor to feed you or something like infants. When the next crisis rolls around, I pray that we will have used our preparation season to get all of you ready to feed yourselves and to feed the infants, spiritual infants in your lives more effectively, more systematically, right? And then we can come back and report like the disciples and Jesus and all that. That's how we do this. But it's really interesting because I know for a lot of you, there's like a, there's a weird, very common, weird survivor's guilt happening because 2020 wasn't that bad for some of you. In fact, deep down on a personal level, You kind of liked it. Introverts, give me an amen, all right? No, I know you would never. Um, So (laughs) you were cool with it. As long as you didn't like lose your job or get real sick or something. Like there was a lot of people who felt bad about feeling good, about staying home more, the change of pace, having less to do. You know, I had a lot of really manly guy friends that took up baking for some reason. and, And that was you know, it was cool. They gave me scones and stuff, and that was fine. But I think that's, it was, it's fine to enjoy all of those things. But we have to understand that for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, downtime is not idle time. Downtime is preparation time. And, and so baking is a wonderful thing but it's way better when it is enriched with prayer, (laughs) when it's enriched with worship and gratitude, where these ingredients come from. Wow, look at it rising. Thank you, God, so much. Like all those kinds of thoughts and feelings and and actually pouring your heart into this, this season of preparation. This is important. And this is what those times are for. I know a lot of us have felt regrets at times for wasting those seasons of peace. When the war comes around, we're not even ready right? That can change today. That can change today, and you can choose to be prepared for the next round of struggle that's inevitable and that will come your way. That's the way Jesus leads us, all right? So uh, the second thing that he does for us, other than preparing us for the struggle, is he teaches us to pray through the struggle, to pray through the struggle. So I mentioned in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent out how many disciples? 12. He sent out 12 disciples in chapter 9. Chapter 10, he sent out how many disciples? 72. All right? So the movement's growing. It's getting bigger. So you can only assume in chapter 11 it's about to get real. Like, you know, hundreds, right? Nope. Tap the brakes. Chapter 9, sent out the 12. Chapter 10, sent out the 72. Chapter 11, guess what he did? He taught the disciples how to pray. They said, Lord, we're, we're doing all this work, but can you just teach us to pray? And that's when he said, Sure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today bread for today. Don't lead us into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil. He taught his disciples how to pray. And it wasn't a one-off either. Jesus at least 20 times prayed out loud in front of people. After, in the Sermon on the Mount, telling religious people to be very careful not to pray in front of people. Remember that? The teaching where he's like, don't lift up your prayers in front of people to be seen. Jesus still did 20 times. I don't think he struggled with the same kind of pride that some of us do, right? Because he was doing this for a reason other than glorifying himself. He was teaching his disciples how to pray. Go home and read John 17. Jesus prays out loud in front of his disciples for his disciples. Heads of household, parents, spouses, roommates, are you listening? Like you're a Christian leader more than likely. If you're here right now, you're the Christian in your home leading others to know Jesus. Like, are you praying out loud in front of people for them? Because there is an extra powerful thing that happens there. Not only are you getting the benefits of prayer, you are teaching others how to pray. You're showing them your heart for them you're talking to god on their behalf but you're also teaching them how to pray when you pray out loud there's something powerful that happens there and jesus was always praying and when the romans and the jewish leaders turned up the heat on jesus guess what he did he prayed even more he prayed at the last supper for the meal he prayed in the garden of gethsemane lord if this be your will take this cup from me or if not i'm good let's go he prayed on the cross As he breathed his last, three different times he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was always praying. Now, prayer is essential to fighting off the spiritual forces that come at you in a struggle. The problem is it's the most formidable weapon God gives you, and most of us leave it at home most of the time. Prayer's hard for some of us. We come with all kinds of excuses. We say, prayer's just not my thing. I'll let the prayer warriors handle it. Or I've got ADD, Pastor Eric. I just, I can't, I can't focus. Or I'm so tired, I just... I fall asleep every time I talk to God. And I'm like, I bet God feels good about that. No. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I just can't focus. I'm too busy. I don't know what to say. Listen, okay, I hear the excuses. I'm telling you nine times out of 10, if not 10 times out of 10, the problems we have with prayer have to do with faith. With faith, it's a faith issue. I want to be very clear. Faith is not something you have to come up with. It's not It's not a work. It's not something you have to do. It's a gift from God. And so if prayer is a struggle for you, your next prayer should be simply, Lord, give me just a little faith. Grant me just the gift of a little bit of faith so that I might believe in the supernatural power of prayer. The prayer that moves mountains on this earth. In my 13 years of wandering and in that other kind of whatever I was doing, I was a pastor during that time, but I was mostly about politics and activism. I can't remember a time during that season of my life that anyone ever called me on the phone to pray for me on the phone. Now, 13 years, long time. Maybe someone tried, but knowing me, I acted like I had no reception or I I acted like my battery died on my Nokia phone or whatever, like that was, it was too cringy for me back then to be prayed for over the phone Like if they tried, I probably didn't pay attention, but I don't remember anyone even trying. And I think it's because in that tribe that I was in at the time, theologically, politically, there wasn't really a supernatural belief that prayer makes a difference. We said things like, I'll be praying for you, but we didn't. Or we did in a sort of pedantic, now I lay me down to sleep and remember, Eric, you know, that kind of thing. But a, a prayer of power? trust and faith that God will come through in a supernatural, miraculous way, that is different. And the last uh, 10 days, 12 days of my life have been some of the hardest in my life. I can't really get into it. And I, some, very few people know what's been going on, but it's really, really, really hard time right now for me and, and people close to me. And you know that in the last week, my phone's just been ringing off the hook with people who hear about this struggle, and people I barely know saying, hey, I just called. Got your number from so-and-so. I just want to pray for you. And I'm like, right now? They're like, right now. And they pray over me. And, and because God's given me and I've received this little gift of a little faith, it's not cringy anymore. It's a gift. It's, it's a sweet thing that makes all the difference. Without it, I would be lost in this fight, this struggle that I'm in. And so I give God thanks. And that's really where we're hopefully headed when we struggle is to trust God enough to believe that prayer makes a difference. That's how Jesus prepared his disciples. That's how he prepares us today. Third and finally, in Christ, we learn to persevere beyond the struggle. Persevere beyond the struggle. So we don't merely struggle to survive it or we we don't merely just endure it. Jesus puts us through the struggle and walks with us through it so that we might overcome it, so that we might be victorious in it. So there's, a, there's an outcome here that is greater than we might imagine when we struggle. Remember the memory verse we had in the beginning of the series from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, says, For the joy set before him, Christ took the cross, bearing its shame, scorning its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so there is a victorious outcome that's on the way when we, when we persevere through the struggle. It's not just about getting through it. It's about emerging victorious. Romans 3, Romans chapter 5, verse 3 says that, that our suffering, our struggle produces perseverance. And our perseverance produces, there's the word, Character. And character produces hope. Again, a trajectory. God has taken us through the struggle to someplace better. Not just a flatline survival, but taking us to someplace better. The struggle is not a curse. It is a gift. When we look at it through the eyes of God and follow Jesus through it. All right? So when we look at the struggle this way, um, we persevere and trust Christ. So that word persevere is just, it's one of my favorite words in the New Testament because of what it means. So persevere is two Latin words. The per part is a Latin word that means thoroughly. And severe comes from the Latin word severus, not snape. But severus in Latin means, well, severe. Okay, so so the idea here is, is that we're called in the struggle to be thoroughly severe, which is a... a, a Another way of saying we're called to grit our teeth, to grind it out, to be tough, to get through it, to be like Geo on the streets of West Chase, just day after day, trusting God, putting one foot in front of the other. He's taking us someplace. It hurts, it's hard. We're not up to the task, but by the grace of God, we persevere. So it's not about life getting easier for Christians. It's about God giving us the strength to be tough to fight our way through. This is how Paul put it for the first Christians. And I'll, I'll wrap with this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. Listen to what he's saying to these Christians who are being abused daily for their faith. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, and beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. That's like prayer, right? Weapons of righteousness in both hands. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good, genuine, yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. This is how we're called to look at the world when life's a struggle. Listen, the Christian life is bound to be a struggle, even a pastor's life full of struggle. There's all kinds of things about my job that I could live without. I could live without church politics. I've had plenty of that lately. I could live without, I could live without, you know, confrontation. I don't love confrontation, but it's part of the job. I could live without my kids using my own sermons against me. Like when, you know, my son's like, dad, you said that Christian parents shouldn't care that much about Little League, but you still scream at umpires. And I don't love that. You know, I, I could do without it, but but just the moment that this job starts to feel like a job, I think back to the six years we've had together, to all the lives, the many, many lives that God in his grace has chosen to save, to change, to transform. Think about all the men and women and children, students, people of every age who've come into this community feeling confused and lost, terrified, addicted, hopeless, despondent, like they're, they, they've messed up too much and, and there's nothing to be done. Their life's going to be a mess forever now. And I've, I've looked into the, just the sadness of some of your eyes and I've watched ever since you put one foot in front of the other by the grace of God and I've seen him turn it around for you. I've seen the life change that comes when his Holy Spirit transforms our character. I've seen marriages brought back. I've seen souls saved. It has been amazing to watch. And I think about those six years and what the next six could be like. And I realize that although many days are hard and although the struggle is real, there is nothing that can stop our God. Nothing. There is no opposition that will stand in his way. There there is no one, no evil, no darkness, nothing that will stop him from bringing about the transformation in us. As long as we're open to it, he will make it so. And in the next six years, he's going to transform hundreds or even thousands more lives than he's done in the past six And not just in my church life, do I rejoice in this, but I think about what he's done in in Pastor Giovanna and how only God could take that girl, 14 years old, looking out her window in Quito, Ecuador, saying, are you sure, God, me, a pastor? Only God could take that girl. And 20 years after that, that girl becomes the the, first pastor woman of color to be appointed to St. Luke's Methodist Church in its long history. That girl becomes a force of nature that really is the brains of this operation. That girl becomes the the pastor that you all know and look up to. Only God can bring about that kind of change. And and it just is a reminder to us that no matter if you're in a season of struggle or you're, you're in a season of peace, of preparation, You don't have to figure everything out today, but you also don't have to sit idly. Simply trust God, because as far as he's already brought you through thick and thin, you can be sure he's not finished with you yet. He has a great plan still to bring about through you and in you, if you will only say yes. So for the struggle ahead, Jesus prepares us. He teaches us, To pray through the struggle, and he teaches us to persevere in spite of it and to overcome. There's a victory awaiting you, no matter how bad or dark it might seem. There's a victory on the other side. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this reminder and this teaching from your word today. Thank you that you are a God who not only helps us to survive the struggles of this life and to see us through them, Lord, but you bring us out victorious. On the other side, you bring us out and grow us up. You help us to mature, to evolve, to learn. Lord, I pray for the courage right now not to shrink back before all of this, but I pray that each one of us would step up and believe your promises are true, that you're not finished with us yet, that there's still so much more that you're about to do through us as individuals and us as a church. We love you for that. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.